Welcome to Hazel and Katniss and Harry and Star, a young adult literature podcast, their film and television adaptations, and everything in between. I'm Joe. And I'm Brenna. And my voice is still garbage, Joe. Honestly, Brenna, I don't even know what to suggest to you at this point. (laughs) Devin was like, might you need to take a day off? And I was like, how dare? How actually dare? Yes, except that you're now in a position as a staff member at a university where you're actively encouraged to take a sick day when you need to. I know. I've just been working from home. That's not really a sick day, incidentally. No, No. No, it is not. A sick day (laughs) is when you curl up under a weighted blanket with just absolutely ginormous amounts of tea and watch the worst Netflix has to offer. Or Disney (laughs) Plus, maybe, if you're hopping on board that train. Oh my goodness, I almost tried to get, there's some Disney Plus series, I can't remember what it's called, but it's like a, it's basically like a Hallmark movie, but a show okay. that Disney Plus like pumped out. And last night I was like, Devin, let's watch this. And he's like, we haven't even watched The Mandalorian yet. Are you kidding? Oh, and you need to hop on that Mandalorian action. I have no homework to share this week, but I would love to talk for, you know, 10 to 15 minutes about how adorable Baby Yoda is. <laughs> I have only watched the first like 10 minutes of the first episode last night because I keep falling asleep. We haven't gotten to Baby Yoda yet, but it is funny how like I was in a coffee shop last Saturday and like I've got my wallet, which is BB-8 on one side and R2-D2 on the other. Nice. And the coffee shop guy was like, oh man, have you watched The Mandalorian yet? And like I had Baby Groot with me and I was like, no. And I just gestured meaningfully to the baby. (laughs) I have my own baby to look after. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah, that's actually very funny because the, so we're going to date this episode, but the big Twitter controversy for film Twitter was someone dared to suggest how to break down Martin Scorsese's new film, which is over three hours. And he said, if you have to watch it in chunks, here are the places to stop and then start it back up again on subsequent viewings. And about 9,000 people had opinions and they jumped in to tell him how stupid he was because he dared to suggest not watching a film in one go. And there were a bunch of people who came to his defense saying, as a person with a small child or a family or just other commitments, I don't always have the luxury of watching something in one go. No, and actually, you know what? One gift this podcast has given me is that I traditionally have hated watching movies in chunks. Like, I have just been unwilling to do it. And as a result, there are lots of things I never saw because I never had a three-hour block of time. And because of the pressure in quotation marks, like good pressure to get Mm -hmm. through content for this show, I have started watching movies mostly in 45-minute chunks because that's how much attention span I have at the end of a long day. And I have to say, I enjoy and understand things a lot more, and I fall asleep a lot less frequently in the middle of stuff. So I'm going to call that a win, Brenna. I feel like that's a win. I feel like, you know, art is meant to be consumed by people in the way that they can, right? And like, I feel the same way when people are like, I, I marathon that book in like a whole weekend. I just, And that's a great feeling. Like, it's amazing to get to sit down and just read a book for a weekend. But like, yeah. it's not very realistic for most people. It's a luxury that not yeah. everybody has. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not just like a person with kids thing. It's like an elderly parent caregiving thing or a working multiple jobs thing or trying to cobble together gig work thing. Like Mm -hmm. there's a lot of reasons why it might not be possible. And I think more and more people do not have the luxury of large chunks of time. So good for random Twitter guy. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> and good for you for making a date to see the Mandalorian at some point in the near future. And it's in last night, and I'm thinking that if the Groot takes a decently long nap today, might be able to get through the rest of the first episode. Pretty excited about it. There you go. Things to look forward to. <laughs> I'm genuinely trying not to work at home because working at home, like on the weekends, because working at home on the weekends is really getting in the way of consuming any culture whatsoever. Like whether it's going to a local craft show or watching The Mandalorian. So I got to draw yeah. some lines. Uh, yeah, because guess what? You're not getting paid to work on the weekends. Totally not. And also, um, my job will not love me at night. So mm, no. <laughs> No. Not like a good book can. Uh, hmm. <laughs> yes. So uh, so we've not said. We are talking about it's oh, right. kind of a funny story this week. And we should frame this up properly. We'll do our proper homework and everything in a sec. But we talked about this briefly last week. It's kind of a funny story is a real difficult text. Yes. So content warning, trigger warning, it does deal, frankly, with suicide. There are other characters in the book suffering other kinds of mental illness. Um, there's self-harm in the book as well. Ultimately, the book itself is quite hopeful, but I think we're going to be talking a fair amount today about the fact that the author of the book, Ned Vizzini, did take his own life mm -hmm. some years after the book was published. And, and that, for me, has really changed my perception of, of some of the themes in the book. So I just think we should be upfront that we're going to be talking about this stuff pretty frankly. And you know what? If today is not the day for you to listen to that conversation, we totally get it. We understand. Yes. And for those of you who <laughs> have been following along with us and are like, wow, so we got through speak and now we're doing this. <laughs> we, we only have happy things to round out the year so yes. we've got two more regular episodes to come before the year end break and i hope that i can promise that they're going to be a little bit more uplifting yes not that they're more valuable just because they're a little bit more happy but but they're both also a little more in keeping with the christmas season we could say that more there keeping we go with the holiday season so sure. yeah yeah no i mean there's no no denying that i struggled this week I really love a lot of the things that are happening in this book. Like, I think he's a very gifted writer. Mm -hmm. oh, but the yeah. context around it makes it a really complicated and difficult read. And this is another, like, I could not have binged to this book by any stretch of the imagination. It, it took approaching it sort of in small pieces. So, yeah, we, we just want to say, you know, if you're not down for this conversation today, if this is not right for you, come back another day or, you know, maybe yeah, or skip it. not. And that's okay. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, in the interim, do you have any homework that you would like to share? I have uh, unbridled rage. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, I'm happy that we can start there. <laughs> Joe, the CBC has canceled Anne with an E. Oh, gosh, right. I forgot that. <laughs> <laughs> this week has been a year. Yes, it has been a year. I think part of the problem for me was I worked from home on Tuesday, and that felt like a false Friday. And mm. then then there were just so many Fridays that followed the false Friday, like a right. week of them. So yeah. it's been very long. Yes. Yes, but this news did come down this week, so we're dating ourselves. You all know we record about a week and a half in advance. They aired the last episode of season three in Canada on November 24th, and we've been informed that there will be no more. Mm -hmm. That is it for Anne with an E. So for those who aren't in the know, uh, Anne with an E, it was actually just called Anne in Canada. And then in yes. the States, they called it Anne with an E. And then CBC was like, Anne with an E is kind of a good title. <laughs> We're going to call it that now from season two on. 
It's a little more distinct, if anything. It is, it's true. And there have been a lot of Anne adaptations. So it's based on Anne of Green Gables by Lucy Maud Montgomery. Friends of the show will know that that is a favorite text of mine. And in a way, I'm a bit of a scam artist here because I actually haven't seen the new iteration of Anne. I'm just, I just object to it being cancelled in any format. Right. But one of the things that I have been excited about getting around to watching Anne with an E for is the fact that this version of Anne of Green Gables places Anne more wholly in her cultural contexts. Right. So, for example, there's uh, actual discussion of integration of the treatment of black Canadians in Atlantic Canada. Many listeners may not know, but there's a large population, particularly in Nova Scotia, where Anne was born, of black Canadians. And that history is pretty egregious in terms of Canada's colonial history. Mm-hmm. The series also deals with what the indigenous presence in Prince Edward Island would have been at the time of Anne's story. So many people have been like, oh, don't make my Anne all politically correct. Oh, jeez. But really all it's doing is giving a more holistic sense of what the context would have been in which Anne lived. And um, I just think it's been a really brave and interesting approach. And it's been wildly successful. This is the part I never get about the CBC. Like, Mm -hmm. they don't have to make money, right? They literally just need to break even on scripted drama. Yeah, and anybody who is paying attention to Canadian television will see that this is not the first time something like this has happened, where shows that are either seem to be doing well, or they are creatively doing well, and there is obviously a distinction, but a lot of Canadian TV shows have a tendency to run for exactly two to three seasons, and then they are cancelled, so... As a Canadian viewer, if you like these shows, it becomes really difficult to get attached to them because you're constantly suffering from the, oh, will this befall the same fate as all the other syndrome? This is a surprise to me because typically Canadian TV shows that have a U.S. partnership with something like Netflix or with Pop, like Schitt's Creek, mm-hmm. typically those get an extended lease on life because they are being separately funded in part. So there's residual rights from ancillary markets. And of course, the U.S. distributor is paying to cover off part of the cost of the show. Because as much as CBC shows don't need to make money, quote unquote, at the same time, they can't be seen to lose money. So Canadian viewership numbers are often such that they are seen as failures. So a U.S. distribution deal means, okay, you know what we've got additional eyeballs in this we can justify keeping it on the air and there is a specific relationship between the cbc and netflix now i believe anyway Mm -hmm. right like netflix has first right of american distribution for cbc scripted drama now yes which is a wholly different topic that has frightened a lot of canadian content creators (laughs) well yeah because who's the audience Well, who's the audience, but also how much creative control are they going to have? Netflix is actually not the kindest of partners to deal with because they tend not to reveal how well a show is doing and they give you all your money up front and then they walk away smiling into the sunset while they reap the profits. Well, this is my big question, right? Is that if the issue with CBC seeking international partners, and you know they've had lots of successful partnerships with the BBC, with Australian Mm -hmm. Broadcasting Corporation... If part of the reason they seek out those partnerships is to grow the audience, it seems odd to connect with a distributor who is not going to tell you what the audience is, right? Yeah. 
and you would think that having Netflix as a partner on particularly in with an E would guarantee it a little bit more of a larger lifespan. This was not a decision that the creators of the show made. They were no, told it was not. this is the end of the show. So it also makes you kind of question, well, what's the benefit of having this if it means that you don't get a longer lifespan on this show? Yeah. So lots of murky moral questions. All that to say, unfortunately, this is probably the end of the road for what sounds like a groundbreaking adaptation of a classic text. Well, and one of the problems is, right, Netflix is where people go to when a show gets canceled on traditional broadcast media, but they feel like it has an audience that the traditional broadcast media isn't accounting for. Mm -hmm. And Netflix is already out, right? So yeah, I don't know. We're going to probably tackle this text in the future, and I'm looking forward to it because I have tons to say about Anne. Oh, I can only imagine. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, Anne has been adapted zillions of times. One of the first ever silent films was an adaptation of Anne of Green Gables. So we have a long history to look at when we get around to talking about the adaptation. Which, as a Canadian text, is shocking. It we is don't shocking. have a lot of those in this no, country. We almost, we almost never have anything we get to say. So <laughs> that aspect of it is exciting, but I think from what I know of the history of adaptations, this one was particularly unique. It's also interesting that it came out, so two adaptations of Anne came out in 2017, like the same year, two TV adaptations. There was this one on CBC and there was a YTV one. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, that actually starred Martin Sheen as Matthew. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I I never watched it and it didn't last, so I don't know anything about it. What people seemed to like about this version was that it had quite a lot to say about social context in a way that I mean Lucy Mama Montgomery is very interested in the social context of her time so yes. it's interesting the way we take classic texts and I think we're gonna find uh the same thing next week Joe though I won't say what we're talking about yet because I'm mm-hmm. teasing it <laughs> that these authors are really interested in the social context of their times and then we as contemporary audiences tend to really want it to be a sort of bland version of history and we tend to erase away all of that social context and conversation particularly when it makes us uncomfortable i think also because not to diminish us wholesale but i think also historically we become a little bit dumb and yeah we forget what the circumstances were like that these people were writing in like i know that when we did our emma clueless episode and when we did our scarlet letter episode i often really struggled not just to find a way into the text but also to understand their specific context and what kinds of nuanced things you should be teasing out we tend to as a society approach texts in a really ahistorical way yeah. and i i wonder if that comes some in some ways from how we're taught to read books right like you read fiction in a literature class and that's where you talk about it and then yeah. you leave and you go to history and you go to sociology and you never connect those dots right whereas i think if we had a more this is like a third time i said holistic today it's like not even 7 30 a.m but if we had a more <laughs> holistic approach to the way we thought about literature i think that might be different um right. instead we tend to we tend to box them off and i don't think that's helpful so we'll get into this again but i'm sad for Anne with an e i'm sad for the creative team there's some pretty incredible writers and directors working on that show mm-hmm. including Catherine burrell some some pretty formidable uh folks <laughs> involved in this show uh, people some creators of color involved as directors and writers so i don't know it's just a shame it was a really interesting and unique project in so many ways yeah 
Well, the good thing is, is that we will have an opportunity to keep it alive in the future, so. We sure will. And for our American listeners, hope is not lost for you because season three drops on Netflix for you in January. So you can keep an eye out for that in the new year. Mm -hmm. And as I said, I have no homework this week, so maybe we can just jump right in. Okay, I'm taking a big breath because I feel like this is going to be a lot. So we're talking about It's Kind of a Funny Story by Ned Vizzini. And as we said in our content warning off the top, this is a book that deals really frankly with suicide. And it's not just a fictional story that deals frankly with suicide, but it's a real life story that deals Mm -hmm. frankly with suicide. And I think that intersection is what made it really hard for me. I was saying to Joe before we started that I read this book for the first time when Ned Vizzini was still alive. Not that I realized that was something to, you know, it's just like, oh, wow, okay, whatever. He's an author, author, he's still producing work, neat. Yeah, moving on. Moving on. And I found this book incredibly hopeful. Mm -hmm. We'll talk about this as we talk about the arc, but our main character, Craig, it's not like he finishes the book being like, well, I am cured of depression, but he finishes the book with a really uh, hopeful sense of his own ability to cope as life goes forward. And so then, when you find out that Ned Vizzini did not, I don't even know what the right language is here, Joe, but when yeah. Vizzini's battle with depression did not end the same way as Craig's, right. it's, um, it's a real blow to the sense of optimism and to your sense of what is going to befall Craig in the future. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Well, particularly because I think you probably have a better understanding of this than I do, but there is context that this is a partially biographical work because Ned Vicini did check himself into a psychiatric ward and he stayed there for five days and then he came out and it seems like he wrote this book almost immediately afterwards in a very short period of time. So he was dramatically changed by the experience, but it sounds like it only worked for a short time. And Vizzini has talked in interviews about how he's, he describes it's kind of a funny story as being about 85% autobiography. He sort of mashed together his own teen experience. Uh, he went to an incredibly prestigious high school. He was a high-achieving mm-hmm. teenager who never felt like he was successfully achieving what he was meant to be achieving. He was publishing books as a teenager, though. He was. He had a column in the New York Times when he was like 17. Yeah, he very much is the Craig-like character where he is doing things right, but but not everything is okay. Exactly, and family pressures that Craig experiences are very much like what Ned experienced growing up. So he merged that together with his stay in an adult psychiatric hospital for five days. And yet Joe's right. He wrote this book in about the six-week period after being discharged from the hospital. Crazy fast turnaround crazy fast turnaround and much like craig he was contemplating suicide he called a suicide hotline they said go check yourself into a hospital and he did and that's exactly what craig does and it's interesting because i've read in some reviews some contemporary reviews of the book saying like this is too easy no one actually like just calls the suicide line and then does what they say and that part is actually completely like from Vizzini's own experience i think it speaks to this idea that we have become accustomed particularly in ya stories to things not being simple Mm -hmm. so we think well where's the dramatic conflict shouldn't he have to struggle with it more it shouldn't be so simple as you call the helpline and then you check yourself in and you're just there for five days and it's like 
it doesn't have to be that way because that's actually the manufactured Hollywood version. Yeah. This is what real life is. Sometimes it's easy and sometimes it's not. And sometimes it's really messy. And the book itself is very, very, very quiet. So about the first third is us learning about Craig's life Mm -hmm. and seeing his day-to-day experiences and his friendships that are not particularly positive for him and his experiences with his psychiatrists and his psychopharmacologist. So we have a lot of buildup and a lot of lead-in into who Craig is, for better or for worse. Like, I would say that he is a narrator who is typically narcissistic, right? In yes. that he is only seeing the world from his perspective. Yeah. Um, and he really frames himself as the hero of his own narrative. He becomes the big man on campus at yeah. the psychiatric hospital. But the flip side of that is that we have these moments in the text where we realize that all of these other people, like their lives are going to go on after he goes. And it, and it's something that he is only beginning to figure out how to be aware of other people's lived experiences. Yeah, that's one of the strengths of the book is that it's not only candid and it offers optimism without a promise of happiness mm-hmm. at the end of it, but it slowly... You know, I hesitate to use the analogy of the onion as the metaphor, but (laughs) it really does kind of peel back things and it helps Craig to begin understanding why his individual context is not necessarily unique, but Mm -hmm. also that he should find value in people who are a little bit unorthodox because he surrounded himself by these other perfect people who put up facades about how you should be coping with all of the crap that life is throwing at you. And it takes up to this point for him to realize, oh, that's not a good coping mechanism. That's not going to help me. It's interesting that the book was written in 2006 because I could see a rewrite of this book or another version of this book that really draws in sort of the way people present themselves on social media as a component yes. of what Craig's experiencing, right? So yeah. I guess we haven't really given a plot summary, have we? We should tell people uh, what's I happening. I mean, we're, we're dancing around it, but yeah. I feel like we're doing okay. <laughs> well, I'm just thinking because so in the beginning third of the book, you mostly meet Craig, his family, his medical team, and his best friend, Aaron. And Craig is in this friendship with Aaron and he sees Aaron as basically perfect. Yes. Aaron does extracurriculars that Craig doesn't feel like he has time for anymore. Aaron succeeds at school in a way that Craig has to work incredibly hard to just keep his head above water. I love, there's this whole meditation on the fact that Craig gets 93s at this super elite private, or not private school, it's a public school, but it's a super elite public school. Yeah. But he might as well be getting D's. Yeah. And it's funny because I so remember in my master's year, I kept oh, yes. yeah. getting A minuses. And it was like, A minus is a grad school C. Like, <laughs> Yep, exactly. And yep. I was applying for PhD programs and I was like, what am I doing? I'm only an A minus student. So yeah, I had some uh, some some feels of, of relation to Ned on that score. But he's constantly comparing himself to these people around him and I... It's fascinating to me because uh, it's something that we, I think we tend to blame social media for a problem that social media is only exasperating, right? Like Craig doesn't need to see his friend's Instagram accounts to assume that they are all living more perfect lives than him. Exactly. And I'm not, I'm not denying that, that social media and the performance that we all play on our, on our social media feeds doesn't feed into that and exasperate it but i think it just makes it more obvious yeah it's really i i really liked that aspect of the book of seeing just how human that experience of comparing yourself and finding yourself wanting always Mm -hmm. because that's where craig's at he just 
he can see all the achievements of the other kids in his school, but he sees himself as average. And it's compounded by the fact that he got perfect on the exam to get into this high school. And that's like the greatest accomplishment of his life up until this point. Uh, and then he finds out that there was a bit of an issue with the exam the year that he took it. And like lots of kids got perfect on it. So mm. it's like this one thing that his parents are so proud of. And he kind of holds up as this like proof that he could put his mind to something and do it has this sort of veneer of, but could you over it? Yep. Yeah. So after that first third, the rest of the time is entirely spent on the psychiatric ward, which is uh, six north of the hospital, which is two blocks away from his house. Yes. And he meets, you know, a colorful cast of characters, one of whom is a teenage girl who has cut up her own face. Mm -hmm. And he finds her attractive, even though he's also struggling with feelings for Aaron's girlfriend, mm -hmm. whom he has had a crush on forever. Mm -hmm. And her name is Nia. And they've developed a closeness because Nia yes. also struggles with some mental health issues. But she's also, just like every other teenager, completely self-absorbed. So she actually believes that Craig tried to kill himself because of her. Yes. And she finds it sexy that he's yeah. in a psych ward because it makes him weird and dangerous. Yeah, she's kind of an egregious human being. The teenagers in this book outside of Noelle don't come off particularly well. They're teenagers, man. Like, they're real teenagers. Like, in that sense of, as an adult reader, you read it and you just want to shake them. Yeah, which, to be honest, was one of the issues that I had with this book, was I actually find Craig mm -hmm. kind of insufferable. Mm -hmm. But it's one of those things where you, you know, as a reader, you're you're thinking, oh, this person's the worst. And then you pull yourself back and you say, oh, but he's a 14-year-old boy. Of course he's a narcissist. Of course he's thinking about sex when he should be thinking about comforting someone. Yeah, yeah. But that doesn't always make it an easy read, unfortunately. Particularly as an adult reader, I found it challenging to connect with him or to sympathize with him. Well, I think over and over again, the honesty of this book, I think this book is fiercely honest, and that makes it hard. Like, it's hard to get into a book that is so unflinchingly, unblinkingly honest about stuff. These are aspects of person of Craig's personality that he's not proud of, right? Yeah. But they are displayed to us in sort of an unflinching way. It's very different than it's very different than the way sort of that teen self-involvement is depicted in like a John Green novel where it's almost yes. like there's something lovable about this time in your life when you're wildly self-involved. Yeah, there's nothing romantic about this. No, it's very much like, yeah, he needs to snap out of this, but what are you going to do? <laughs> you know? Yeah. It actually brought me back to our very first book, The Perks of Being a Wallflower. I definitely felt the resonances, for sure. I think this is more honest because there's still a bit of a romantic idealization. Like, you you don't always know that that character has the self-awareness to realize that the way that he's reacting to other people is unhealthy. Like, it takes him a very long time to realize that. Part of it, too, is that in that book, you're, you're building up to a twist. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't think Craig is an unreliable narrator. I think he's an oblivious narrator a lot of the time. Whereas yes. in Perks of Being a Wallflower, in order for the twist to work, the narrator has to be unreliable some of the time. Whereas yes. here, there's no twist. And I think, no. I mean, the simplicity of this novel is, I think, remarkable. If you think about what else was being published in 2006 in YA, it was all deeply complicated dystopias. And, and you know, and then you've right. got this really simple 
straightforward novel about a guy who just literally just has to check himself into the hospital and do the work. Yeah. And that's it. There's no, I mean, there's a romantic subplot, but it's funny to me, there's, this is one of the biggest disjunctures between book and film that we've had, not in terms of plot, although there are lots of changes in the adaptation and the plot, but just in terms of like, the book is so comfortable just being quiet and the film has to be a film. Yeah. Yeah. So how does this book end? Let's try to wrap up something of a plot. Synopsis. Oh, okay. Sorry. I forgot we were doing that <laughs> stuff. Um, yeah. So at the end of the book, um, there are a few uh, loose ends that get tied up and more that don't. So one of the things that I like is that there's, so there's kind of this mentor figure, Bobby, in the text who um, has been in and out of psychiatric institutions uh, for a while. So the scene that I'm thinking about in particular is when Craig asks if he can have, as he's planning to leave, he asks if he can have Bobby's phone number, Bobby and Jimmy. He asks for their phone number so that when he leaves, he can get in touch with them because they're going to the same group home when they get released the next day as well. Right. They're like a team. They are a team and they're kind of adorable. I really like them. And Jimmy starts to be like, oh yeah, definitely. And then Bobby's like, nope, we're not doing that. And Craig's like, I don't understand why. And Bobby's like, this isn't a good place to meet people, man. And he's like, but I like you. Like, I like the people I've met in here. I want to keep these connections alive. And and Bobby's really pragmatic about this idea that, like, who you are in the world is not going to be the same as who you were in this enclosed space. And he has this little sort of quiet moment where he says to Craig, like, I don't want you to be disappointed in me when you see me out in the world. Like, I need that. Like, I need a hole in the head. Right? Mm-hmm. I think it's a nice payoff to the relationship that Craig is building with his doctor, Dr. Minerva, yeah. because she tells him... People aren't anchors. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So she tells him, you're here to do work on yourself. Do not form attachments to these people and certainly do not form romantic attachments. Yeah. And that's very... I think that's on her first visit, the first day or the second day that he's in there. And it never really sinks in. Like, I don't actually know that it ever sinks in for Craig because that's why he asked for Bobby's number. That's why he wants to give everybody presents before he leaves. And you're just like, no, dude. But that's the 14-year-old in him, right? He says, oh, I like these people. We should keep this going. And these adults look at him and say, I've been in and out of these places for years, possibly decades. This is my life. My situation is not the same as yours. A lot of the people are at-risk populations and they don't have the kinds of stability and resources that Craig can just fall back on. He does realize that when he realizes that he's got a family, he's got a house that he can always return to. Yeah, that he doesn't have to go and interview at group homes to make sure he's not going to be homeless when he gets released, right? Like, it's a very different experience for these other other people. And I don't know, there's something really interesting about the growth that Craig doesn't achieve in five days you know what i mean like if he figured out that appreciated if he figured that lesson out in five days it would not make any sense but he's got this metaphor that he comes back to three metaphors really that come back over and over again so cycling it's this Mm -hmm. idea that like once you start down a negative thought path it just kind of spirals and spirals and spirals he's got this idea oh four because he's got this idea of the shift like he's waiting for a shift to happen in his brain like he'll be able to eat one day and then the next day there's a shift and he can't eat anymore. Putting food in his mm-hmm. stomach just causes him to throw up. But the two that are most important to the way the book functions are anchors and tentacles. So anchors are things that keep Craig grounded. Like anchors are things that he can hold on to and that will always be there. And tentacles are demands on him. So like his email account is a tentacle. This high school that he goes to that's like crazy intense is a tentacle. Many of his friendships are tentacles, right? Things that come with expectations are tentacles. And one of the things that he keeps doing is he keeps trying to find people to be his anchor. 
So like he wants his mom to be his anchor. He wants Mia to be his anchor. He thinks Noel could be his anchor. And the lesson that he does learn, the one few of the few lessons is that your anchor needs to be something that you can do for yourself. And what he finds is that his art, this ability to draw these maps is his anchor. Mm -hmm. It allows him to finally come to a permanent shift because mm -hmm. he realizes that he no longer wants to go to this high pressure school. He wants to do something that allows him to pursue his art, which is one of the few things that gives him legitimate joy. Yes. And so he leaves with kind of a solution, like his parents are going to let him transfer, but he has to finish out the year. So he gets to the end of his stay at the hospital. And this is really the main thing that he's discovered for himself is that going to i can't even believe the high school's name is executive pre-professional i like, it's know so, it's so it sounded awful. like an office like a corporate office seriously it sounds like like jeff bezos presents an amazon <laughs> education mike mike pence's <laughs> like military approved pre-executive school it sounds horrible so he the, the big realization is that that school is not a source of pleasure for him that what he conflated was the success of getting in with a sort of sense of success in general mm -hmm. which remains eminently relatable oh my god i know <laughs> Gotta get Baby Groot into the best preschool, Brenna. Oh, God, don't tell me. It is crazy how, how how quickly the pressure starts. And, like, he goes to a very low-key daycare. Like, they play all day. And sometimes when I get there, they are watching Paw Patrol. And, like, nice. it is a very chill place. And down the hall is this place that we also interviewed at called um, – oh, I won't say. Anyway, there's this place down the hall. <laughs> it's, like, intense. Like, they're two and a half and they're sitting at little desks. No. Little no. teeny mm -mm. tiny desks. Like, it's crazy. Yeah, and it does. It starts so young. Or, like, you know, people having their kid in kindergarten half day, public kindergarten half day, and then in, like, a private Montessori program, like, the other half of the day. And it's like, mm -hmm. just let them play. <laughs> Shout out to my sister. <laughs> no, one of the things that really struck me was Craig's idea that people aren't having midlife crises anymore, mm -hmm. that they're having, like, quarter-life crises, and they're having eight-life crises. And it will just become increasingly more and more fractured as the demands on everyday life become more and more insurmountable to people. Yeah, and I think I like that image he has of like, you'll be born and the doctor will kind of look at you and try to decide and pop you on antidepressants right away. It reminded me of The Giver, I'm not going to oh, lie. Oh, yeah. Ah, the baby is born? Hmm, no, this one's not going to handle it. <laughs> Down the chute with you. <laughs> Jesus. But it is, and it's funny because as reading this now, also with parents' eyes, which I didn't read with the first time. It's like, I like his mom. I don't like his dad. I think... No, of course. You're not supposed to. No, I know. But I think this sense of, are you doing the right thing if your kid is miserable? But flip side, are you doing the right thing if this is actually the requirements of the world you live in? Like, these, these people, they live in New York. In many ways, his dad is just trying to prepare him for the world that he is actually going to go into. Oh, absolutely. He himself is trying to be pragmatic, right? He's trying yeah. to be realistic and set his son up for success. But he's also not listening to his At son all, and ever. not validating. Like when your son can't eat dinner and then immediately goes and throws up with yeah. the lights off for a long stretch of time. And your response is to sigh. Yeah. Yeah. And it's in the in the family dynamic, the mom is trying everything, like acupuncture, aromatherapy, change psychiatrist, change psychologist. What about a new med? Like the mom is trying literally everything to the point of mm -hmm. like ridiculousness. Letting him sleep in her bed. <laughs> and the, yeah. And the dad is literally like, eh, I don't Buck know. Buck up. Buck up. Don't be sad. 
Being yeah. sad's not working for you. Try not being sad. Exactly. You know? Which is, by the way, just in case people don't know, asking people who are going through something or people who have a history of depression or mental illness, asking them how they're doing or telling them that they should just get over it or they should feel better, not a great solution. Yeah, it doesn't. It's not a, not a thing. It's not yeah. a thing that you just can wake up and be okay. No. Because we are talking about brain chemistry, we are talking mm -hmm. about pharmacology, but also, let's face it, the reality of life is such that we cast aside people who are problematic or who are struggling because who's got time for them? I got to get to work. I got to go and play my extracurricular sports. I've got to do this other thing. One of the things that I really liked about this book and to a slightly lesser extent the film, is it acknowledges that everyone has worth. Even the yeah. people that you think are weirdos or who are randomly yelling things or who come and tell you to shush because you're being too loud even though you're using your indoor voice. <laughs> all of these people, yes, they're characters in quotation marks, but they also all have worth and they can contribute something to you if you stop and take the time. And the lesson that Craig learns, one, this thing about himself and what school he needs to be in, but also what he learns is that it's not all about you. Like he's not he's not perfect by the end of the book, but he does no. recognize some, the value of being of service to people. So his first experience of that is that he lends Bobby a shirt so that Bobby can go to this group home interview. And it's meaningful to him, right, that he is able to do that, to be that person. And then he gets Aaron to bring in a record of Egyptian music for Muqtada, his roommate, who doesn't leave his room because he doesn't see anything in the hospital that is there for him that would be mm -hmm. meaningful to him. And so he offers him this music and he does it with a so, self-serving reason yeah that yeah that I doesn't know. work that actually works so much better for me in the film it does work better in the film because it's yeah well for many reasons which yeah we'll get to yeah. but also just uh the fact that his dad comes and brings a movie and they watch it together like this idea of or even even the art that he does create for people although it's also he's also trying to turn people into anchors by giving them gifts of himself he yes. is also i think recognizing that doing things for other people can be meaningful and he has really never done anything for other people prior to this moment no no that's one of his difficulties is that he's formed connections not just with the wrong people but for the wrong purposes yeah we are all friends because we are high flyers who are going to go to the same fancy school. And then his other friends are the people who get him pot. <laughs> yeah. But like the idea of friend who actually needs someone is part of the reason why I think he misreads or maybe just puts too much stock in Nia because she yeah. is willing to disclose private things about herself in a way that other people don't. And so there's this sort of false understanding of what their friendship is or what their relationship is as a result of that. Yeah, I'm not going to lie. I was very frustrated with the Nia character. And I, again, I acknowledge that this is coming from Craig's perception of her. So mm -hmm. this is not like a lot of the women in male-centric YA. Mm -hmm. They are often not actually fully realized. They yeah. are an idealization of whatever this boy projects. It's such a distinction between male and female YA. Yes, it it's is. It's something I never, I never really realized until we started doing this. And it's like, yeah, wow. Boys just think of girls in a really shallow, trivial manner. And you just don't see that in female centric YA no very frustrating the, the young men <laughs> the young men in books by women tend to be fully realized human beings and the young women in books by men tend to not be yeah 
Yeah. And that's very much Nia. So you get this glimpse that she is a bit more troubled than she initially lets on. She obviously does not confide in her boyfriend, Aaron, because she wants to come off as perfect. But at the same time, her function is so... I don't want to say shallow, but it's unexplored. Yes. And it's almost trivialized to the point where she might as well have just been categorized as a freaky sex addict who comes in to shake things up and she kind of ruins the thing that Craig has maybe going with Noelle, which I don't like at all. I almost wish that Ned Vizzini had not done anything romantic Mm -hmm. in this book because Mm -hmm. I think it takes away from the messaging it feels like a deliberately YA construction to say well you can't have a teenage protagonist without some kind of romantic interest or sex Mm -hmm. plot line and it bothers me because I think Nia is just it's gross the way that her character is introduced and handled and it feels like at the end of the day she's really just there to be a foil in whatever is developing between him and Noelle. I feel like it's extremely possible that that's exactly what happened. Like he got a note that said, this is all great, but where's the the TNA? Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting because if you think about the context, so the teenage backstory is from his life. The Mm -hmm. hospital is from his life. And he's like, and 15% of it I made up. And I feel like... That Noelle 15% and Mia, just has an up. arrow that points to Mia <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and Noelle, right? It's very true. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't doubt that he probably had a girl that he was in love with and she wouldn't give him the time of day or they confided in each other, but nothing happened. Or he maybe saw someone that caught his eye that might have turned into something had they not both been in a ward. Yeah. But yeah, it just reeks of terrible YA-ness, like the stuff that we feel gets in the way. But it's in there because publishers say, well, how else are you going to get these audiences to invest in these characters? A thousand percent agree with you. A thousand percent agree with you. It's the part that works the least well. It's the part that I liked it the least in the book. I liked it the least in the adaptation. Yeah. Um, I actually hope they weren't going to do it in the I adaptation. For a moment there, I thought, oh, you know what? They're just not going to do this. And then they do. And it's just as bad as I expect. <laughs> yeah. With the added part of like, so Noelle has, Noelle has cut herself. And Noelle has disfigured her face, right? Like that is a a recurring theme in the book is that she keeps her hair over her face all the time. And the scars on her face are bad enough that Craig is grateful to his parents for not appearing to notice or comment on them, right? So yeah, so it must be pretty bad. Yes. And so then we get Emma Roberts with uh, three lines (laughs) on one cheek. She looks like she got into a cat fight. She does. Looks like it's going to be healed by next week-ish. Exactly. (sighs) Yeah, although they do give her cuts on her arm. Yes, they do. Those are easy to hide, and it don't get away in the way of her Emma Robertsness. I just, I, I was like, I knew it was going to happen because it happened yeah, yeah. in um, what was the last one with the disfigurement where the same thing happened? Mortal Engines, right? Same yes, thing happened there. Exactly. And it's just like we really, as a society, like cannot brook an imperfect woman. Like it's, it's just not going to make it onto the screen. I don't like unattractive girls, Mama. <laughs> I don't want them in my YA. <laughs> These people need to be movie star levels attractiveness. <laughs> Even though, and no shame to Kier Gilchrist, who plays Craig in the film, but... 
the averagest of average dudes. Right? Yeah. Our mediocre white boy continues. Yes. <laughs> Meanwhile, Emma Roberts is over here with a couple of scratches. A couple of scratches and the most meticulously perfect. Uh, oh, I don't want to talk about the hair. I don't want to talk makeup. about anybody's hair in the movie. <laughs> Zach Galifianakis's perfectly tweaked hair. <laughs> no. I put this tuft up when I'm acting like a person in a mental hospital. Exactly. Well, should should we at this point transition and introduce the film? Yes, before we do, we never finished the book. Sorry, so because you asked me to and then I got distracted. Craig comes to this realization that acts of service and a new high school might be a better lease on life for him. He leaves the hospital really hopeful and importantly, he leaves the hospital on his own. So his parents come to pick him up and they walk ahead of him and he asks if he can walk home by himself and really sort of enjoy this sense he has that he can manage the world. Mm -hmm. Okay, now go ahead. Sometimes I wish I had an easy answer for why I'm depressed. Welcome to 3 North Craig, our adult psychiatric floor. Our teen floor is undergoing some renovations. Is there a place here for people more like me? I got all kinds of patients here, man. Hey, hey, Bobby. How about a tour for our new friend Craig? What is it you do here? Same thing as you. What are you doing in the emergency room? ER has the best coffee, son. I really don't think I belong here. Five days, Craig, minimum. So... Uh, The film comes along four years later in 2010, and as we briefly talked about, it's got a bit of an all-star cast. I'm not sure that they were, most of them were not actually as famous as we're giving them credit for then. They've become more so recognized now. So we have a writer-director team. It is Anna Bowden and Ryan Fleck. And if people think that their names sound a little bit familiar, it's because they've gone on to do... Something rather significant by writing and directing Captain Marvel. Captain Marvel! Yeah, so yeah. they did not do well with this film in terms of box office or critical success, but uh, you know what? They landed on their feet. Yeah, they sure did. So our cast includes Keir Gilchrist as Craig, Zach Galifianakis as Bobby, and the film takes a lot of characteristics of Hubble and yeah. Bobby from the book. So even though there is a Hubble character in the film, he's unimportant, and Bobby gets everything. Yeah. Emma Roberts as Noelle, Zoe Kravitz as Nia, which was an interesting choice having... I feel like they put her into a time machine and just (sighs) aged her up about 20 years. (laughs) Yeah. Not like in this film. She looks like a teenager in this film, but then you see her in something like Big Little Lies or the new Harry Potter Fantastic Beast movie, and you think, wait, when did she become an adult? Yeah. <laughs> like Seriously. She just magically became an adult overnight one day. Uh, Thomas Mann as Aaron, Jeremy Davies as Smitty, Viola Davis as Dr. Minerva, and then Lauren Graham as Craig's mom, Lynn, and Jim Gaffigan as Craig's dad, George. Yep. So this film only made about $6 million, so it did not do good box office. I had not heard of the book, but I had certainly not heard of this movie, which is surprising when you think about the fact that it only came out, you know, nine years ago, and it's got this cast. And the reviews were more or less middling. So a lot of people praise Gilchrist's performance. He's Mm -hmm. always really good. Uh, So Brenna, he's the guy from Atypical. He was also in a really great show with Tony Collette called The United United States States of of Terror. My favorite. Yeah. If people want a great depiction of mental illness that goes off the rail as the seasons go on, highly recommend that show. It was a good show. It was a good show, yeah. 
And Keir Gilchrist has like this knack for taking on roles that he is good in, but the contexts around which are maybe deeply problematic. Yes, yeah. <laughs> and he's always attracted to this kind of role, right? Yeah. The sort of struggling young guy. I mean, he's been playing a teenager now for what seems like 20 years. So yeah. he's doing the reverse Zoe Kravitz. He's not aging at all. Yes, it's true. It's kind of amazing. <laughs> uh, but things to note in the reviews is that people felt that the film lacks substance. It doesn't have a great deal of depth and that it attempts to be too much of an indie darling. And I won't lie, I felt very much like this is a wacky garden state take on mental health from a teenage <sighs> perspective. Yeah, I, it's very capery. I don't know. So the book has some problems around things like there's a transgender patient. Yeah, that has not aged well, has it? No, it's treated very badly in the book. There's also... Yeah, it's a homophobic panic, people. Totally. Which is, if you know anything about trans rights and the rate of murder that straight people get away with for killing someone when they ident when they realize that they've been hit on by someone who is trying to pass, this seems like very poor taste. It's very poor taste. It's very poorly done. There's a fair amount of fat phobia in the book. I think that yeah. um, Craig, part of his arc is actually seeing human beings as human beings. So mm -hmm. it gets less egregious as the text progresses, but it's certainly there. The film doesn't deal with the fat phobia stuff at all. I mean, they basically just don't have the conversations about those characters in any meaningful way at all. But he also doesn't act that way. So No, in the film, he's much more, he's sort of dismissive of everyone in the film. Yeah. In a different way. So it's worth noting that Laverne Cox plays that character in the film. Oh, the really? Trans That's a young Laverne Cox. Very right? young Laverne Cox. Okay. And on the one hand... It's not treated well. Not treated well. So I was going to say on the one hand, it's actually a trans woman cast as a trans woman, which... Yeah, which never happens. Never happens. And it's interesting that they take this fairly groundbreaking moment and then the rest of that scene is horrific. Yeah. Craig's little sister yells, who's that tranny over there? And then there's like this whole weird panic scene and another character starts yelling transvestite and then they just cut away from the whole scene. And I don't even know that we see that character ever again. I don't think we do. She's she. There's a scene of her and I was like, oh my God, that's Lauren Cox because she's leaning against the desk mm -hmm. talking to the nurse. She never gets to speak in the... No. Or I guess maybe she gets one line in the film version when they're at the cafeteria tables. Anyway, it's egregiously handled in both cases. Yeah. You would literally never see this done in this way, no. even five years later. No. It's crazy. It is I, crazy. I, That's the thing that came to me is I was like, wow, okay, nine years. That's how long it took. But in nine years, we went from like... I was horrified in both versions, yeah. and I realized, you know what? We would never see this again. This would no. literally either be completely excised, or it would be handled much better. And it's just so striking to me to think, I went from the beat of, oh my gosh, they actually have a trans woman playing a trans woman. Mm -hmm. Oh, cool. my God, that's Laverne Cox. Oh, how cool. To, oh, God. Oh, this is terrible. They've just used this as like a beat for, it's not even for laughs. Like, I'm not actually sure what it's I for. I don't know why it's in there. No. 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 It's to give the film personality. This film loves big personalities. Yes, and that's sort of, I got there by way of your comment about it being sort of like a garden stating of a mental hospital. It really mm -hmm. is. I was texting Joe last night because it was driving me crazy in the film adaptation <laughs> that they keep leaving the floor. Yes, uh, 
Okay, so let's unpack this a little bit. So there's yeah. a couple of small changes that at the end of the day, you know, who knows why they made these decisions, but like six north in the book becomes three north in the film. Mm-hmm. And Dr. Minerva is his doctor on the floor and not his outside doctor that comes in to see him. Mm-hmm. And Bobby and Hubble kind of switch roles. These are small, insignificant things that don't really make a big difference to the text. Mm-hmm. Like, Brian, my husband, was watching it, and he, like, obviously, he didn't know, and it didn't bother him at all. And then we have a couple of really big changes. So the film is a solid adaptation that also is not afraid to say, yeah, we're taking this idea from the book, and then we're going to make it more cinematic. And I think if you just watch the film, it's mostly fine. You could understand that there are some issues with it in terms of the thing that you just identified, Brenna, where you're like, that doesn't quite make sense, but it's fine. Whereas if you read the book, you're looking at it thinking, who okayed this? This doesn't make any sense. No. So the biggest thing is that, yes, Bobby, Craig, and Noel are all able to just wander off this apparently unguarded floor for people with mental health issues who are at risk for self-harm. And all that you have to do is put on a pair of scrubs and you can just leave the floor and go to a basketball court or the the roof roof. like even brian was like what no what (laughs) and it's literally just there so that you can have a romantic moment between craig and noel it's so dumb it makes me crazy so i hated it (laughs) i don't know so i've i have been to a secure hospital floor this is not a thing that happens there's not just an unlocked back door that you could sneak out of no, like there's someone sitting there too, I yeah. imagine. They do this bit where there's, they put on scrubs, like pretend to be doctors. That's how they escape. It's mm-hmm. so foolish. Yeah, there's, so first of all, the doors are locked unless there's a fire alarm going off. And there's people sitting at the doors uh, so that people can't leave. Like, it's just so weird. To me, it diffuses all of the the inherent tension of a text that can only happen in a confined space to just yeah. be like, oh, but sometimes they leave. <laughs> yeah. And you get the sense very early on in the film what kind of tone they're going for because Zach Galifianakis is introduced as a kindly oh, yeah. kooky doctor when Craig is down in the ER. And Zach Galifianakis comes out and, you know, they have this conversation. And then later on, you see Zach Galifianakis's body up on the floor and you realize, oh, he's a patient who has managed to get off this floor. And that's very much what this film is trying to do. Like, they're presented as ill people. And there's a there's a quite a few moments of genuine emotional, Mm -hmm. like emotionality. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, the film desperately wants you to think that these are kooky outrageous funny little incidents right yes and the problem is is that those two tones don't work you can't have somebody who's undergoing a mental health crisis who's also having really elaborate fantasy montages where he becomes david bowie yes and the film gets away with it because the people in the film are really good and yeah. likable. Like, yeah. You root for these people because you like them as actors. But if you're looking at it as a cohesive film that's trying to do some serious work, like this is not a serious film. No. In that way, it's losing a lot of what the book is trying to capture because it wants to desperately just be this uplifting, semi-romantic mental health comedy. Yeah. 
I agree with you completely. Because here's the thing. Here's what changes when you when people can just uh, have a wacky caper and go and explore the hospital. It means that everyone is there by choice. Yeah, because you can just wander out. You could just wander out. You could just wander out anytime you wanted. So like in the book, Craig realizes he needs help, goes to the hospital. He's pretty on board for the whole thing. And then he has this moment of like, oh, what have I done? The movie extends out that, oh, what have I done thing where he's like, oh, I don't belong here. I shouldn't be here. Like, I'm not like these people. Do you have a spot for people who are more like me? Like, it's really on the nose. Yeah. That doesn't make any sense when he's already seen that Bobby can leave. Do you know what I mean? Like, mm -hmm. the sense of like... He would just walk out. He would just walk out. Why wouldn't you just walk out? Like, it, it, it changes everything about the stakes. Yeah. One of the other issues that I had that kind of coincides with that is the change of Dr. Minerva being yes. his doctor on the outside who comes in to help him and she understands his problems Yes, to the Dr. Minerva of the film who is, you know, she's Viola Davis. So she's cool. great. She's a delight. But she's also, she's the hospital doctor. We don't have that sense of connection, but he opens up to her immediately. Yes. She's able to treat him and you get the impression she's everybody's doctor yes i'm pretty sure that there are doctors specifically for teenagers compared to adults yes like you wouldn't have someone with schizophrenia going to a doctor who is also working with like teenagers who are suffering from depression yeah so i don't think we said this but the conceit is that the hospital is undergoing renovations and so the few teenage patients who were on their own ward are now in with the adult population and which feels very much like a movie conceit but it it's does. actually it's a foundational component of both book and film and it makes sense in the book because the people who are actually treating craig day to day are his outside doctors so they're coming yes. in to check on him his psychopharmacologist comes in to administer his or to set up his medications and stuff like there's a continuity of care that would be focused on a teenager but yeah mm -hmm. in the film it's just like anyway now you guys all go to the same doctor yeah whose office inside this hospital is gorgeous by the way it's gorgeous yes it's ridiculous yeah. If you've ever been to a doctor's office inside a hospital, like where they do their like charts or whatever, it doesn't look like that. <laughs> no. no, this is this is very much a film that is aiming to not make you uncomfortable, except yes. for when it wants to introduce a kooky scenario. Yes. Like Craig is having an emotional phone call and the guy comes up and tells him, can you please keep the sound down? And you think, oh, that guy, you know, <laughs> mm, yeah. what a funny recurring bit. Yep. Now. I feel like we're not being overly generous to the film because mm. if you can separate the changes that it makes from the book that do it a disservice as an adaptation, I do think that there are at least two things that it does very well. One of them is that musical sequence, which... I really liked it outside of the context of the book. Yeah. So this <laughs> is something where in the book... Craig, he's very unwilling to participate in the group activity, so he doesn't want to do any arts and crafts, and he certainly doesn't want to play music. And in the book, he is, of course, forced to do both because that's what you do. You have to participate or else you will be made to stay longer on the floor. Yep. And in the music class, he ends up playing the bongos or something Yeah, he like picks that. up the congas, and then he hands the congas over to the other woman, and he plays the bongos, yeah. Right. And the, the whole idea is that they're making terrible music where they all just produce a cacophony of sounds. Yeah. And 
he finds a way in that benefits one of the other people. So the person who's always saying, it'll come at you. Yeah. He finds a way to like utilize that in service of the music. And it's one of those ways that he begins to connect with other people is he realizes I can do something and then other people can build or riff or benefit off of it. Yeah. I was actually really glad that they don't try to do that in the film because it would have just been an excruciating it wouldn't have made audio sense. Yeah. <laughs> experience yeah so instead they but have it also him... wouldn't have made sense with his character right because he's not at that point in the arc in that no. point in the film yeah it happens quite early in the film so in this case it actually plays on this idea that craig is still a bit of a narcissist and that he's still looking for a bit of an escape so he ends up having to take the microphone and he sings david bowie's under pressure but what we get is this extended fictional it's not a montage, but it's like a music video in a yeah. way where everybody in the cast gets an opportunity to get glam rocked up and they just rock out to the tune. And it's actually like, I think it's the most genuinely happy, emotional moment in the entire film. I really liked it. Like I just okay. <laughs> visually, no, sorry. I know I paused for a long time because I don't know how to, I don't like it for the character. I don't like it as a adaptation. Yeah. But I like it as... As like a viewer of this movie. Yeah, and I think that if... I think I would have liked the film more if I could have divorced it more completely from the book itself. Yeah. Because I did think moments like that were really effective. Like, there's something very lovely in that scene about every single one of the patients gets a moment in the spotlight in the mm -hmm. way that music video is constructed. So yeah, every like single person and their moment in the spotlight reflects their personality or the personality that they wish the world saw like it kind of fulfills the same role as craig's pictures in the book right mm -hmm. where he's able to see something more yeah something unique honestly. in each of them yeah which doesn't happen in the film otherwise so i like it for that um yeah but i i have a hard time with it in the context of the yeah. rest of it i would say the other big thing that the film has as a feather in its cap is the visualization of craig's mind maps so yeah if you read the book you get a little piece of them at the beginning of each section and obviously the cover is an example of it but apart from that you're meant to project it yourself as to what it would look like when he does these drawings and the film actually gives you a couple of extended animation sequences as you see him figuring it out and then you get to see him do it as watercolors that he gives to people and they're beautiful my god they're really, talk about they're convenient really nice, expertise yeah. <laughs> You're right that they do lack the personal touch. So, you know, we don't see him produce something specific to each person based on what he's learned about them like we do in the book. But I, I would also argue it's because at the end of the day, the film is really only about two and a half characters. Craig and Bobby and a bit of Noel. Yes, exactly. Yeah. yeah. I was going to say there are moments where it is more, way more Bobby's movie than it is Craig's. Yes. That's actually, I think, the other big change that the film does. And I don't know if this is a we've got Zach Galifianakis on board or if they just realize there's a compelling story to be told here. Mm -hmm. And since we have teenagers and adults, I don't know. Okay, so this is kind of the conversation that I wanted us to end on. Knowing how we preface this, knowing your challenges, knowing about Ned Vizzini's fate. Mm -hmm. So we finished this movie. The movie ends sort of the same way, but... To me, there's one really, really big significant change. And because you're you're so invested in Bobby's arc, which 
they lean into him a lot more as a character. You find out more about his relationship to his wife and his eight-year-old daughter. Mm -hmm. You actually get to see them. They come and visit him on the floor and it doesn't go well. You find out he's made six attempts on his life. Yes, which is not something that we hear about at all in the book. And there's a shot at the end of the movie where Craig has befriended these people. He has lured his Egyptian roommate out with the Egyptian music and everybody's dancing. And you see Bobby come into the Mm -hmm. room and he looks and he has a kind of sad smile on his face Mm -hmm. as he sees Noel and Craig kiss. And then the next morning, he's meant to be discharged at the same time as Craig. But when Craig inquires about him, he's already gone. Mm -hmm. And on one hand, you could read it as, you know what, he's doing what Bobby does in the book where he doesn't want to try to make that connection with Craig in the outside world because he knows it's not the same. Mm-hmm. And I think on another hand, you could look at Bobby as a reflection of Ned Vizzini and that Bobby has gone off to kill himself. Oh, God. Did I just shock you with that potential reading? You did. It's a really sad thing. Like, you could look at it as he's happy for Craig, but he realizes that it's not something that he'll ever have. But yeah. it's also he can't connect with Craig and the inclusion of those I've tried to kill myself six times and how it becomes this running plot line in the film where he won't tell Craig why he's in there yeah to me suggests that there is a sad fate awaiting Bobby at the end of this film and that's why you don't see him and Craig interact one last time so I've ended this episode on a downer note (laughs) (laughs) It makes sense as an argument. I mean, Ned Vizzini was still alive when the film came out, but I mean, that doesn't have to impact Bobby's character arc at all. No, this could be me reading into it, knowing what I know of him. Well, but how can you not, right? Like, this is one of the things that I think we were always going to circle back to, which is that a book and a film about teen depression that ends so hopefully, Mm -hmm. paralleled with a story, paralleled with the real life story of the creator who ends his own life at 32 yeah it's a lot and it can't help but undercut some of the hope you feel for craig's future or the way you're reading it some of what's possible for bobby yeah sucks man like it's (laughs) it changes so much and it it feels i i was saying to joe off the top that i don't know how to talk about this because it feels really unfair to the work Vizzini left behind to say that it changed for me so much. Yeah, but how can it not, right? I mean, this but is... But also, how can it not? I mean, this is one of the biggest struggles that I feel like people have, very broadly speaking, with art in general, is this idea that art is not produced in a vacuum. So you could read this book, you could not know about what happened to Ned Vizzini, and you would have one appreciation of it. But the minute that you know that he took his own life Mm -hmm. and then you contrast that with the way that the book ends how can your appreciation of it not change yeah and the same thing even if you if you read the book and you think uh you know it wouldn't happen this way in real life but then you find out that it's partially autobiographical so he is drawing from his own experience like all of these real life implications and influences will factor into the way that you process the art because it's not ever a standalone piece like art it's not produced in a vacuum Well, and we're human beings, right? So we're going to have affective responses to not just the art, but to our understanding of the artist. Oh, yeah, 100%. Art of it. Yeah, I struggle. I really genuinely struggle with how to talk about 
because it's somebody's real life too, right? Like suddenly mm-hmm. it's not just it's not just fiction. Yeah. And that makes it hard as well. Yeah. Well, and I know when you were queuing this for the last episode at the end of Schick, you mentioned that you you made a call. You asked for people to send you own voices, examples, mm-hmm. and one of the reasons that the film doesn't work as well is because it's a little too casually flippant. Yeah. There's an authenticity about the book, whether you like Craig or not, whether or not you like the inclusion of characters like Mia. At the end of the day, you can read the book, and if you have that understanding that this is something that Ned Vizzini actually went through, it has a depth and an authenticity to it. And then you see the film, which is fun and kind of flighty, and it has a bunch of sequences that make you feel good and make you feel alive. Yeah. But it also... It's a mass-produced Hollywood film that was intended to make money, and it's an opportunity for this writer-director team to say, hey, this is what we can do with escapism, and please also give us Captain Marvel. (laughs) Yeah. I'm being a little facetious. I appreciate that. But there's something to the film where it has been, like a lot of these adaptations, the edginess has been sanded off. The parts that are going to make you feel bad have been removed. Yeah. The depth of Noelle's potentially sexual assault by a family member have been completely excluded because it doesn't fit a feel-good narrative. Yeah. And yeah, please give us your $10 and buy a popcorn and treat your usher kindly. Uh, Yeah. And it it makes you wonder, you know, and I did, you're right, I did suggest this off the top, or off the end of last week's episode, is this idea of can an own voices book ever be effectively adapted if the creators behind the adaptation are not themselves people who've had that experience right like to what extent is the book exactly why we cry out for own voice stories and the film kind of an archetypal example of what we lose when we don't have own voices stories in the world Mm -hmm. without condemning the film because i think there are things that the film does cinematically really well oh yeah yeah but it's such a different text at the end of the day. Yeah, which is funny because you could look at it and say, oh yeah, they only just make a few changes. But yeah. at the end of the day, it's different in a lot of big, significant ways. Yeah. Yeah. And as a bit of a cue, so we, we've recorded a mini-sode for the new year, but Brenna, you and I are going to struggle with this idea about own voices and whether or not we're now living in a day and age where that starts to take almost more precedent for the kind of stories being told. So Mm -hmm. if people want to hear us talk a little bit more about some of that struggle, we've got something coming Mm -hmm. up for you in the new year. For sure. Yeah. Oh, Um, I have two pieces of trivia. Okay. Yeah, cue us up. The first one I told you uh, by text last night, which is that Ned Vizzini had recently made, towards the end of his life, had made a pivot into writing for television, including he was one of the writers on Teen Wolf. (laughs) <laughs> which is important to joe's brand i think uh, <laughs> i have watched the majority of the series yes uh and the other piece of trivia is that the film was scored by canadian band broken social scheme yeah okay mm-hmm. yeah just interesting because they don't get a name drop we only get <laughs> vampire weekend and yeah other i was bands trying like to that. i was trying to do the math in my head like did we not know who broken social scene was in 2010 maybe anyway I thought that was odd, too. Hmm. Yeah. All right. Let's do some YA bingo. Okay. Bingo! 
Not a good bingo. So I'm going to start us off with a couple. So I'm going to throw in musicality for that David Bowie number in the film. Yes, definitely. And you can fight me on this, but I think also perfect date for when they go up to the roof. Oh, it's totally supposed to be a perfect date. Okay. Yeah. And in the book, too, I think there's, I think you could use perfect date around some of his fantasy sequences. Mm-hmm. I actually quite like their meet cute, ask me only questions encounter. Yes, I did too. Um, I am going to say sexual awakening, fortunately. Mm-hmm. I am going to say unlikely friendships because that whole thing is built on unlikely friendships. Of course, yeah. Unfortunately for Noelle's backstory, abuse. Yeah. And then I am going to put down convenient expertise because I'm sorry, but Craig's <laughs> skill with watercolor, <laughs> which he apparently <laughs> has learned in five days, <laughs> makes mm-hmm. me kind of nuts. Although those are beautiful. I would hang one of those on my wall. Oh, but yeah, five days. <laughs> Have you ever tried to play with watercolors? You don't get that good in five days. <laughs> no. Uh, what do you think about a bit of stunt casting? Oh, yeah. I was going to ask you what you thought about that because I wasn't sure how the nine years changed. But Zach Galifianakis, I guess, was a pretty big draw to the film, wasn't he? I remember people being like, oh, Zach Galifianakis has signed off on this. Yeah, I believe so. I can't quite recall when the Hangover films were coming out, but Mm. this would have been somewhere around then. To be honest, I looked at it and went, Lauren Graham! (laughs) I know. They totally underused the parents because Lauren Graham and Jim Gaffigan are cast as his parents and they are both painfully underused. Yeah. But it's really not their story. No, it's not. But I think the parents are much more clearly articulated in the book. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. I'm going to go with growing apart for his relationship with Nia and Aaron. More so in the book than the film. God, I love the scene in the book where he just tells Aaron to screw off. Yeah. Yeah. It's quite satisfying, isn't it? It It's very satisfying. (laughs) And then it's your call, but we could throw in some mediocre white boys. It feels a little... (sighs) awful in this circumstance though i feel like it feels flippant in this circumstance so i'm gonna say no okay okay that's all i got all right before i tell you what we're doing next week (laughs) i'm gonna tell you how to get a hold of us so if you've got more own voices tales about mental health that have meant something to you we'd like to hear about them you can find us on the twitters hashtag hkhs pod gets both of us joe how do they find you I am at B stole my remote, and that's the letter V. And I'm at Brenna C. Gray. That's Gray with an A. And if you've got something longer, you can always email us. Remember, we're looking for episode ideas or questions to cover in our new mini-sode structure starting in January. So hkhspod at gmail.com is a great way to send that kind of stuff to us. Mm-hmm. And next week, I am... Getting festive getting festive and i'm tossing joe into classic lit once again although this one was your pick (laughs) this one was your pick we're doing little women by louisa may alcott yes and because people have already figured out that i put the book for subsequent episodes (laughs) up on goodreads unfortunately we will likely not be able to address the new film by greta gerwig which is of course the inspiration for why we're doing this episode now so we will just be tackling the i want to say 1994 film with winona ryder right on i had hoped to see a sneak preview of the new film but unfortunately the dates didn't work out oh bummer i didn't realize okay cool well the 90s were good it's gonna Mm -hmm. be fine 
I'm excited. I've heard a lot of good things about the film and how important this text is to women. So I'm trepidatious about the book. But uh, you know what? We've done this a couple times before. I'll get through it. And you know, it is long, but I remember it being a really quick read. It's been a really long time. And I remember being infuriated by the gender politics. So tune in yes. next week, folks. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yay. Yeah. Uh, so until next time, I will see you on the little tiny page. And I will see you on the 1994 screen. <laughs> <laughs> Bye-bye.